0: It's Rhys Parkinson here and welcome to How I Got Here. I'm excited for this. It's Westfield's new podcast series, exploring unique and inspirational careers. Westfield has some of the largest shopping centres across the world and are key destinations in their local cities and communities. They're extraordinary places where visitors come together to shop, dine, be entertained, and create lasting memories. Westfield and his partners are some of the biggest employers in the areas in which they operate, with thousands of jobs under one roof across a range of industries and sectors, from fashion to finance, customer service to construction. Over the course of eight episodes, I'll be speaking to some amazing entrepreneurs and business owners, from cool brands like Gymbox, Pan and Ice, and Bexfus to not-for-profit organisation, Love Not Landfill. So join us as we hear from the people behind the brand. Today we welcome Judy Ju, award-winning Korean chef, TV personality and founder of Soulbird, a new Korean street food concept of Westfield, London. She describes herself as a French-trained, Korean-American Londoner. I'm looking forward to speaking to Judy to find out how she became a chef After starting her career on Wall Street, award-winning Korean chef and TV personality, Judy Ju, welcome to How I Got Here. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited.
0: Yeah, thank you for for coming on. Uh, Before we even started this, we went in depth about how you used to basically be the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, (laughs) So I feel like that's the best place to start your journey Sounds incredible. So you was working on Wall Street in New York. Yeah. And then became a chef.
1: Yeah, I've had a quite varied and rather, I don't know, random and serendipitous career, I'd say. I reinvented myself a few times already. Um, I was an engineering major in school. So, um, you know, I kind of had this like really typical, if you know what tiger parenting is, you know, so so tiger parenting, like a tiger mother is a term that um, is, I guess, more popular in the States. So it's basically when your parents are like helicopter parents and they make you do everything like, you know, like Excel, Excel, Excel. Right. I had three piano lessons a week. I you was know? just I mean, about to say, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, like, yeah, my parents were like, okay, you must go to this school or else you're going to cast shame on your family and right. generations to come, et cetera. And I was like the dumb one in the family because I only went to Columbia. <laughs>
0: like, and everyone and, went to Harvard. And like Yale. Right, and my okay. sister went to
1: you know, MIT and Princeton, all my cousins, et cetera. And wow. So, um, there was a lot of pressure growing up, you know, so becoming a chef was not in the vocabulary. You know, it's like, you have to go here, you have to do this. You know, I come from a family of doctors. And so um, science was really the only thing that I ever knew. So I went into engineering. And then um, being in school in New York City, though, back then, you know, I'm kind of dating myself. But it really was like the Wolf of Wall Street days, you know, it was before the crash. You know, Lehman Brothers is still open. Solomon Smith Barney was still open, like all these places, Bear Stearns. And um, you couldn't help but feel the pulse of Wall Street just, you know, being in New York City. It was quite exciting. You know, it is the finance capital of the world. And so, you know, I had worked at both Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley before I even graduated. And then I went on to work at Morgan Stanley once I graduated in fixed income derivatives um, on the trading floor. So, you know, like six computer screens in front of me, you know, 20 different phone lines, headsets, handsets, et cetera, like screaming all day, you know, 500 people on the floor with me. And that's when you used
0: actual telephones, not iPhones. Yeah, exactly.
1: I mean. I mean I graduated college I'm dating myself in 1997 okay? with floppy disks did yeah, it, you use floppy disks yes, at it, university it, yeah, okay. yeah I, I remember um, first getting email and to date myself okay so the way that the Columbia email system works at school is like it's your initials plus a number and now it's into like five digit numbers okay I have a single digit next to my <laughs> initials okay so like literally <laughs> I was like like my class was the first class to have email and wow. I remember, I remember my first cell phone, too, in like 1997. Yeah, I got my first cell phone. Yeah.
0: Well, that's got to be incredible when we hear about your journey with um, mm-hmm. Soulbird as well and kind of how yeah. you because it seems that you're really smart at marketing the business, which obviously has a lot to do with technology and how that's grown. So, yeah, you've kind of seen it all. Um, Thank but you, you know, you mentioned coming from. A Korean family, yep. which I guess for a lot of our UK listeners, I've got a lot of friends with African background, and uh, they're always talking about their African parents make yeah. them do kind of the term that you mentioned, where you're a lawyer, a doctor, you yes. have to do a yes. reputable job. um So for you, it kind of started that work ethic and following that path with piano first. Yeah. So just explain how those pressures were from yeah. and, and the dynamic of a Korean family. Because yeah. I guess a lot of us can't might yeah. not be able to relate. Well, I to think
1: that. it's um, a very typical immigrant experience, you know, so my parents are both um, Korean. My father was actually from what is now North Korea. Back then it was one country, you know, so he grew up in a refugee camp during the war and after the Korean War, and they met in the States. So both my parents immigrated to America separately, which is kind of crazy, particularly for my mother, because women weren't traveling alone back then. Um, A lot of families weren't even educating their daughters back then, you know, and so they came to the States with a dream. And back then you couldn't even really bring any money into the states and so it was really just through blood sweat and tears that wow. they kind of made it and somehow my dad made it to medical school after all of this you know but they really left korea when korea was you know demolished it was decimated after the korean war um, korea had the same GDP as Ethiopia it was that poor so and now it's the 11th richest economy in the world so they've really built up over like a generation and so kind of with that work ethic of like just being immigrants it's just like work hard no matter what and just you know and valuing education so much so my sister and I we didn't really have nice clothes or nice shoes but everything went into our education you know absolutely everything and it was just about studying but with that came a lot of pressure you know and and like you said you know um, you have to have like a reputable job, you know, so it was like being a doctor or a lawyer or or an engineer, basically. And, you know, becoming a chef was not in the vocabulary. I was going to say, how, at
0: what point did you know that was, did you always have that passion when you was younger? Like, um, did you know yeah. you enjoyed, you know, yeah. making food and, mm-hmm. and the food experience? Yeah. But you was like, I, I just can't even bring that up. To I know.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I never thought of it as a career until much later, honestly, um, just because it, again, it didn't even register in my mindset either that I would do that. Cause I was kind of on this like fast track and whatever, you know, I have to go to an Ivy league school and you have to work at a big bulge bracket company and da da on whatever and then it wasn't until I guess like later where I was like so incredibly tired all the time because I was working ridiculous hours like just you know like I also moved out to the West Coast. And so I was working New York market hours in San Francisco, which meant I had to wake up every day at three in the morning, get to the office at three thirty and then, you know, still do like your 14, 15 hour day, you know, and then and then I was traveling a ton also. So you fly just to L.A. just for dinner and you come back on the last flight. And then, you know, so it was in a
0: day. Oh, yeah,
1: totally. Absolutely. So you get paid handsomely, but they own you. This is the thing, you know, like you can never turn off, back then it was Blackberries. you can never turn off your BlackBerry, you know, you're always on your email, like you're always at work, even when you're on vacation, you have to check in, you're always working, on the road, everything, you know, and it was a great Um, place to cut my teeth in terms of training you know um attention to detail like learning how to work under pressure and learning how to learn under pressure because i had no clue what i was doing coming out of school you know what i mean i was like a kid you don't know any of this stuff and you just basically get thrown into this environment on the trading floor which is crazy it's absolutely crazy and it's a sink and swim environment like you're like okay you know you just gotta run with this or you're just gonna die you know so Mm. you just learn to like run and um And kind of like keep up and keep up and keep up, and so it was that kind of work ethic. I think that just learning that from my parents, and um, and also I think, I mean, I can't play piano at all now, like at all. (laughs) But one thing that I think learning an instrument helps you with is learning not to quit, you know, and learning to practice and practice and practice, you know, and just that I think um, there's something to be said about that, you know, and and what my mom used to say to me. First of all, she always taught me that it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, you know, because like we're an immigrant family, you mm-hmm. know, it's like my dad was grew up in a refugee camp, you know what I mean? Like you just shoot for the stars all the time. You always go for first place. It doesn't matter like what you're starting out with. It just just shoot for the stars because you might just catch one, you know, and it doesn't matter if you are a peanut vendor on the sidewalk, be the best peanut vendor that sidewalk you know just whatever you're doing just just try to be the best at it and you know i have more stories of failure than i do of success
0: yeah well that's the interesting part because i was going to ask you at what point did you know you're young in in this kind of job role on wall street and like you said you're getting paid like a lot of money Mm -hmm. so at what point do you go "Eh, this isn't for me i'm gonna do what i love and that's probably like it was a huge gamble really but a gamble that Kind of, I'm assuming changes you from doing something for money to more exactly. really fulfilling your life's purpose without yeah, trying to sound yeah, too... Yeah,
1: so funny. it's true. Um, it's a risk. Uh, it definitely is. I mean, I was lucky enough um, that I had enough savings from having been in a lucrative position in finance that I could afford to take that kind of financial risk. And I'm quite... Lucky, And I feel so blessed in, to be able to do that because a lot of people don't have that flexibility, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, I just felt that I didn't want to chase a paycheck. I wanted to chase my passion. And it sounds corny, but after a while, you know, like if you don't love your job, you're going to start to hate your life. You know what I mean? And the same way, like, if you don't, like, the people you work with, you're going to start to hate your job, you know? It's kind of this cycle that you just can't escape, you know? So, and it's a bit of a push and a pull. So you kind of have to, like be pushed by like not being satisfied as well as feeling the pull of something else out there that's better. And so I kind of was just constantly tired at work and like, I didn't love what I did. Like I was like, okay, fixed income derivatives, like yay, (laughs) like, you know what I mean? I'm not gonna like, oh, I didn't want to like read The Economist every single week. I didn't want to read Barron's and you know, I like, I didn't feel that kind of like passion for it. I, I was learning a ton and I loved my work colleagues and, Obviously, you know, it provided a certain lifestyle, which I enjoyed. But it was just, I just didn't find it gratifying. And for me, you know, kind of looking at my life and... First of all, it was very easy for me to figure out what I wanted to do, because a lot of people don't know what that other thing that they want to do it's is
0: like the hardest part That is isn't the hardest yeah. part,
1: exactly. so um, there's kind of a term like what color is your parachute you know like when you want to jump off and so I kind of knew exactly what I wanted to go into. I was like I wanted to go into cooking, and that's a lot of it because I have such a strong science background because cooking really is a science. you know everything is like the kitchen's laboratory, everything is control and a variable, you know whether um you cook something like fast and, and quick over high heat or low and slow. And, you know, it makes a difference if you whisk something or you fold something or if you mix something, different fats, different sugars, everything behaves differently. And actually I'm a trained pastry chef. So pastry, as you what know, is you much, much more.
0: What are you bad at? That's, that's, <laughs> that's what I want to
1: know. Oh my gosh. Um, Give me
0: one thing you're just terrible oh, at. I'm, I'm
1: really bad at running. Okay, good. I really at
0: running.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but you know what? You really do, being an entrepreneur now, you say this like you have to wear so many different hats Mm. and ironically even though I've changed careers so many times I find myself now using every single one of my hats that I was involved in so I was an operations research industrial engineer and now I'm designing restaurants and so much of that design is not only how pretty things look but it's the operations flow you know it's procedures it is Mm. what is the customer journey for front of house and also how is the uh, back of house set up you know how efficient is that so that's what operations Research is like where do the dirty dishes go? What is the flow for the waiters? Where do they drop off the clean dishes, etc.? Like, how do you set it up that it is the most efficient? You know, that's kind of my major. And then I went into finance, and obviously, running a business is all about, you know, finance, profit and loss statements, you know, how do you cut costs, etc.? And and a lot of um, what I do, obviously is also kind of like trying to find money and and raise money to open up things and so you know doing forecasts and business models like doing a good business model is something that I learned when I was in finance also and
0: and even like I guess you'd say that for say uh, a Saturday job or like a retail job that someone may work in say if you work I used to work in House of Fraser but even those skills I guess absolutely stacking shelves there's still a
1: absolutely you can look
0: back in your career and be like yeah. oh that helped me with yeah this i
1: mean it's like karate kid wax on wax <laughs> off like <laughs> yeah. you don't exactly know what it's yeah. going to get you to but stacking shelves like that's all order that is all stock rotation mm-hmm. that is all efficiency design too you know what is the best way to optimize this you know so that is a type of engineering you know like people don't realize but engineering is like linked to absolutely everything yeah. you know like and it's kind of interesting how um I know I'm just putting on so many different hats. But also when you worked in retail, I mean, you know, communication skills, like yeah. the customer interaction, which is a total pain in the butt at the end yeah. of the day having <laughs> to talk to customers, right? But that in itself is such a skill, you know, being able to um, have that kind of social kind of intelligence and emotional intelligence and and how to help people and to be happy and cheery etc yeah. all that time like that is a, a total skill not everybody has that it's kind of exhausting too as yeah you know. definitely yeah. definitely
0: and I guess with Soulbird as well so where did that just how did that get created yeah what made you want to go with that brand name and
1: yeah so um, Soulbird is um, an idea that uh, my business partner Andrew Hales and I have been cooking up no pun intended for a long time now he and I. I've been working together for over 10 years and um, you know, I think that behind every success story, there are certain people in your lives, because nobody is an island that like help you along the way. And Andy is like, definitely my right hand man. Like nothing in my life would happen without him. And he's my COO now. So he's um, in charge of all of operations. But we've been working together for so long, like literally over a decade. So we started together when I was the executive chef at the Playboy Club, which is an interesting story also. And then we opened up the Jinju restaurants together, which we left last year. And then Upon leaving that, we decided, you know what, we want to do a fast casual concept. We want to create a franchisable brand, something that we can roll out. And he came up with the name, actually. So I give him the credit. But Seoul is obviously a pun on the South Korean capital, Seoul, but also Seoul food. And, um, you know, Bird is also, you know, just because it's it's based on chicken. But we've always wanted to do something around our Korean fried chicken. Korean fried chicken is a thing in Korea. There are more Korean fried chicken places in Korea than there are McDonald's worldwide. for real, yeah, okay. it's true. I mean, like you know, stereotypically, people always say that like you know, black people are obsessed with fried chicken. Nah, yeah, yeah. Korean people are obsessed with fried chicken. <laughs> it is so much more of a thing in Korea that, and it's chicken and beer. So it's called chimek So chicken is short for chi, and the mekju is a Korean word for beer. So it's everyone always says we're going out for chimek We're gonna go for chicken and beer. So that's kind of what our concept is based on. And Korean fried chicken is the best fried chicken you've ever taste it right. and if you haven't tried it yet it's different so it's different than nashville fried chicken it's different than southern fried chicken. i had some in atlanta um oh.
0: not korean but no
1: oh no so if you haven't had the better kfc korean fried chicken yeah. okay <laughs> that's the legit yeah, one yeah exactly it's the legit one yeah so is
0: that where you knew like the m- new market of kind of the food industry was going then
1: yes well so this is the food industry i feel was stepping away from fine dining And um, Andy and I both used to work in fine dining. We've both worked in our backgrounds kind of in Michelin star places. And then we kind of want to do some kind of like casual fine dining is what we did with our previous restaurant. And this is a total, just a fast casual concept. So what we're trying to do with Soulbird is kind of trying to be what Shake Shack is to McDonald's and what um, Chipotle is to Taco Bell. We're trying to be for Kentucky Fried Chicken. So it's one step above. It's better sourced. It's better quality. Everything is fresh. Everything is natural. You know, we're making all the sauces, everything is made in-house. And so we wanted to do something that... Um was uh, kind of something that we could roll out just because we just see the industry going more that way. And honestly, that's where the margins are. You know, it's yeah. so hard to make money in fine dining. Um, people, particularly these days, I think during COVID, just want comfort food. They want food that hugs you back, you know? And I love fine dining occasionally, you know, but at the end of the day, like, sometimes I get sick of everything being a foam paste or a bubble and, you know, plating with tweezers and tiny <laughs> little, like, you know, tiny little leaf here and there. And I'm like- One just scallop like just give me a bowl like give me a salad i would just want a real salad you know not like four leaves on a plate you (laughs) know stuff like that so yeah that
0: must be really kind of right now then in covid and potentially going to like you know people saying a second lockdown or just being groups of six and i'm sure it's hit hard on your business oh
1: it's killing the restaurant industry yeah Uh how's I mean, we are a little bit better just because um, we are in a food hall. And so our nighttime trade wasn't as heavy um, as a regular restaurant because we're in a mall. Not many people go to the mall to like hang out at 10 o'clock at night. In you know? Shepherd's Bush, Westfield. Yes, yeah. um, in Shepherd's Bush, Westfield. But... Obviously, the food court is normally supposed to seat 1300 people. And as of today, you know, they're only allowing 290 people in at any given time. The whole place is closed off. There are only two entrances. So it is very cumbersome to access the food hall. We're very limited in our seats. So trade is challenging. It's difficult. Mm. Yeah, but the rest of the industry, everybody's dying, particularly fine dining establishments. It's very, very
0: worrisome for the future of
1: hospitality, what's going on right now.
0: And do you feel like you can come out of that in a positive?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to. We have no choice. I mean, you have to just um, operate and evolve in different ways. You have to you know, become more creative with marketing and um, you have to just kind of change your business model. Everyone has to operate in new ways. I mean, everyone is evolving. People are doing all types of different types of takeaway, you know, take home food kits. I mean, people are just going to have to force to make themselves, you know, operate in more creative ways. You know, in New York City, you still can't even eat inside. And so everybody's opened up outdoor cafes, etc. You know, so it's really kind of um, forcing all business people to look at what their business is and how they can adapt to this new environment
0: yeah, innovation i guess exactly
1: i mean you have to
0: and what are kind of some of the different roles that you have at soul birth because it's obviously i know you have yourself and andrew but i'm yeah. sure there's loads yeah so.
1: tons um i really love um our team right now and i love the fact because we're so diverse and i'm learning different languages at work now because right. <laughs> we have like you know spanish you know, speakers, Romanian speakers. Um, you know, we obviously have uh, people of East Asian descent. We have uh, black people. We have um, Romanian people. We have Colombian people. So it's a really diverse, kind of like a great team We're all working together. You know, I've got my chefs. I've got the front of house team. I've got my cashiers. And yeah, we're, um, you know, a little soul bird family. <laughs> and um, we've obviously had some, uh, you know, turnover already. That's always happens in business when you first open people you know, kind of feel like it's not for them or whatever. And it's not, you have to get the fit right. But uh, yeah, people are enjoying it, I think. And what I love is that the staff loves the food too, which is great because you have to love what you're cooking. Otherwise the passion isn't there. If you don't like what you're making at work. You can taste uh, it. Yeah, you can taste it. I mean, you have to like love what you eat. And, you know, and I love it because the staff, you know, we obviously provide staff meal and they can kind of just like make whatever they want. And they're coming up with all kinds of, you know, different creations. (laughs) And so like they're taking, we have tater tots, which are kind of like mini hash brown potatoes. And I see the guys pouring like ranch dressing all over them and like fried chicken on top. And like, I mean, it's like- Do they
0: ever make the menu though?
1: Uh, no, they no, don't, okay. they don't. But sometimes we look at what they're eating. We're like, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But like they take a bowl and it's like a landfill. They're throwing everything in <laughs> and just mixing and it, it all up. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, yourself as well like, as uh, a personal brand mm-hmm. going into the TV world, how yeah. was that for you? And why did you want to yeah. make yourself the um, face of?
1: I. Th- I think that um, every chef these days is not um, just about just cooking behind a pass anymore and in the kitchen you kind of have to wear different hats and if you're going to kind of quote unquote make it you have to write books you have to write articles you have to be in the press you have to do a bit of TV work so I think the media side of the whole chefing world is quite important also these days if you just want to kind of expand your brand and um, kind of elevate your restaurants to the next level because everything that um, I do on television or in the press, kind of just as fuels the restaurants you know and um, again this kind of goes back to um, you know had many different hats and a strong education is that you know you have to have strong communication skills you have to have strong written skills Um, the fact that I can read a teleprompter on the first try (laughs) you know really helps with the the television work and I kind of fell into that honestly Um, initially I was at a party and I met a producer and she I didn't even know that she was a a producer she was working for Optimum at the time and uh, there was a show called Market Kitchen that used to be on Good Food Television, or the channel here, I think it's all gone now, but um, she was just kind of looking at me through a lens and I started cooking quite regularly on the show and then after that, um, the Iron Chef opportunity here came up and... Iron Chef's not a big thing here. We only had one season, but it is a massive franchise worldwide. You know, it started out of Japan that always had a cult following and went to America, had something like 40-something seasons, I think, in America. You know, there's Iron Chef Thailand, Iron Chef Australia, Iron Chef Vietnam, et cetera. It is a massive, massive thing. And so Iron Chef, even though it didn't do that well in this country, it really put me on the map. And the people that produced Iron Chef in America came over here to consult. And then they saw me and started bringing me over to the United States to do more work on Food Network there and that eventually led to my own show korean food made simple which i had two seasons of and that's still being played worldwide on food network everywhere and um yeah and that kind of led to more things and books and etc
0: yeah do you often get messages from your people in the days of wall street just like i've seen you and yeah two, totally i've tried yeah. you yeah really
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they kind of, you know, a lot of people, like my ex banker friends, are like you got out, you know, <laughs> and, wow, stuff like okay. that. and so. Um, I think it's kind of like a, a, a nice story, you know. They like to see somebody who kind of like left for a passion and yeah, it actually yeah. somewhat worked out, you know. So.
0: No, oh, yeah. awesome, and yeah. then you know just with the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, again, you kind of see chefs and books, this kind of goes hand in hand. Yep. But I'd say, like, how can you make, there's been so many, how do you make one different?
1: Oh, gosh, I have so many ideas, you know, actually. I mean, this is kind of where every chef um, has their own little twist to differentiate themselves. And um, I have such a weird, varied background, you know. I'm a Korean-American, French-trained Londoner. You know, and I think that that's really um, what makes me a bit different because I'm pulling inspiration from every single corner of the globe. And I have strong roots in three different continents. You know, I grew Mm. up in the States. I live in Europe and I'm from East Asian descent, you know, and I spent a lot of time in Korea and around in Asia. Um, I've even lived in Hong Kong for a little bit. And so, you know, putting your own personal twist is something that I find quite easy, you know, and um, you know, I almost have too many ideas. Like for my last book, um, Korean Soul Food, you know, I came up with like 300 different recipe ideas. And so it was about whittling it down opposed to kind of coming up with new ideas. And so it's just putting that little kind of twist on things that uh, makes things different yeah yeah no mm-hmm.
0: awesome and you know it's fun just kind of like uh you've given a lot of advice just from your own story yeah um, but it sounds like there was a lot of things that could have worked against you which you've oh, made yeah. work for you like you just saying from all these different parts of the world and from an immigrant family but you've actually mm-hmm. benefited from that being the case yeah. so for those that may be listening that are in yeah. a position where they're similar and s- seeing them things as a negative how can you kind of Change that and like yeah,
1: I would say that um don't be afraid to take risk, I would say. Um and Particularly for women, I say, because we tend to overthink things, you know, like, and I see this all the time, like even just like in my own kitchens, you know, like the guys like can't do anything. Sorry, no offense, but they're always asking for pay rises and promotion. Whereas like the women are like technically flawless. They're amazing. They're never late, you know, and they never ask for anything, you know, and women all a lot of times when they're given an opportunity for a new job role. They'll read the job description and they'll feel a little bit insecure because they can't do 20 percent of it. Whereas like men will see the job description. Description, think that they can do just 20% of it. They don't even care about the other 80%. Like, yeah, I, d- I can do it and I deserve a 20% pay rise. And right. you know? so as women, for whatever reason, we tend to second guess ourselves, you know, and we tend to not ask for what we want. And so um, I'm, you know, always telling other women that I mentor is like, just go for it. I've been underqualified for every single job that I've ever taken. Definitely. You will learn it, you will learn it quickly. And also, I would say, um, don't be afraid. You know, like just take the risk, take the leap of faith, and go for it. And always shoot for the stars, honestly. And um, another thing I would say is, um, don't underestimate the value of, of education. And it doesn't matter where you go. You know, it doesn't matter what course you take. But I think that just having strong written and communication skills is something that you're never going to be able to get around, ever in your life even being a chef you know because now like publications have no money television shows have no money and so if you can deliver to an editor a recipe that needs very little editing, if you can you know, write something that doesn't need much, if you can provide them with a quote, if you can read an, a teleprompter on the first try and you don't have to repeat and repeat, they're gonna use you again. You know, they can say, oh, you know, I've got a, a deadline in three hours. Oh, I, I can ask this chef or whatever, you know, because they can turn around quickly. I don't need to work on it forever, you know, et cetera. So I think that, um, you know, just kind of making sure that your foundation is good I think is, is really important. And don't give up is my last thing. Cause honestly, like I have more stories of failure than I do of success. Failure is an integral part of success. You just have to get used to it, but get yourself back up and keep on trying. Yeah. And eventually something will stick.
0: Ah, incredible. Yeah. So, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and it's interesting what you said about being a woman. And do you feel like you learn to be able to ask for those things through working with a lot of men in Wall Street, which on the outside seems the most kind of alpha male experience. Because even in the media, women do the same job as men and it's not paid the same in a lot of cases. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think women are getting paid, I think it's, what, 75 cents to the dollar as men still to this day, you know, in countries like the UK and in the USA. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely something that I've seen. Um, Also being a boss to many different people and um, something that I saw quite readily. I mean, and I think that's one of the good things, kind of working in male-dominated environments. I went to engineering, which is completely male-dominated. I remember my first internship that I had at um, AT AT&T Bell Laboratories. I had to go to the bathroom, and nobody knew where the women's room was. Literally, because they were all men. Like, they could not direct me to the ladies' room. <laughs> they, they had to ask a secretary where the ladies' room was, you know? And then I went into um, finance, where I was, like, the only female on my desk that was a professional. All of the secretaries were female. And then I ended up in kitchens, you know? And kitchens, as you know, are completely male-dominated. And so you have to speak up, and you have to stand your ground, or else you're just going to die, you know? And so... Um, You know, don't be afraid to speak up and stick up for yourself because nothing in life falls into your lap you know, you have to ask for it. And the worst thing that can happen is they're going to say no. Uh, yeah. Big deal. You know, and, and I do this all the time because like arguing with like suppliers, I'm like give it for me for cheaper. I want more discount, whatever. And and I have to kind of like kick like my other manager's asses a bit, a little bit. Am I allowed to say that? Sorry. You said it, sorry. <laughs> and, and I had to kick my other manager's butt sometimes because I'm like, well, did you ask for it cheaper? Did you ask for a discount? And then they're like no. I say, well, ask for it. They're, like, and sometimes they, because they're quite young, they feel uncomfortable but then they come back, yeah, I got a 20% discount or I got a 10% discount the worst thing that could happen is that they could say no big deal
0: yeah judy ju thank you so much for your time really thank appreciate that so thanks much. for coming on the podcast and love it best of luck thank you soul thank you Thank
1: you. come try our korean fried chicken i'm gonna
0: break being a pescatarian just for you oh, yeah. said we, it. we
1: have good vegetarian options also so you can oh. get a nice cauliflower quinoa bowl with some portobello mushroom on top if you wanted to dream me there you go thank you thank you
0: awesome Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We appreciate you. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, follow our social media channels at Westfield London and at Westfield Stratford City. Right, so next episode, we are going to be talking to David Cooper, who is co-founder of Gymbox.